Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were, with, who were before you. Now you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. It's good that you're here with us. Let's start off in prayer. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that would want to follow you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I missed last weekend. I was on a father-son retreat that our church hosted at Lady Lodge. Like many things uh, at All Saints in the present day and age, uh, there was more interest than space. You guys might feel it. As a matter of fact, if you're sitting in the back and don't have a seat, there are seats up front. It's only scary for two minutes. It fades away, I promise. Um, But things can be crowded. It's a great problem. It's a growth problem. It's something that we're very thankful for. But this father-son retreat, you don't want necessarily a crowded father-son retreat. Because what that means is you have about 25 dads and about 45 sons. And these are 45 self-control challenged 4 to 14 year olds. Severely outnumbered. What we will eat, who will determine it? If we will sleep, who will determine it? It's literally the battle of the kingdom of the dads and the kingdom of the sons. Heading into the weekend. We felt that a little bit. (laughs) We were preparing for it, for the battle and the war that could ensue. But I bet you can guess what happened. We arrived the first night, and I bet you wouldn't guess this. But all of a sudden, we gather, and I'm thinking of five or six rules that I would love to introduce to create some order out of potential chaos. And all of a sudden, one dad speaks up, who will remain nameless, Taylor Holcomb. And he says, (laughs) guys, one rule this weekend, have fun. 
the fun dad. The fun dad always ruins everything. I had a, I, I, I mean, the bird is out of the cage. There was no chance of restoring order to chaos at that point. It was Lord of the Flies for us. That's just what it was going to be. <clears throat> you know, it was a wonderful weekend. I would even use the word blessed. It was a blessed weekend. But we dads knew a couple things. One, in order for it to be a blessed weekend, we were going to have to surrender to the kingdom of the sons. And two, the blessedness of the weekend was going to be directly tied to the measure with which we actually surrendered. That's true for the kingdom of God. The blessing experienced in it is directly tied to your surrender to it, and it comes. And these ideas of blessing and surrender, they're they're certainly foundational to the Sermon on the Mount, which is our, our focus throughout the season of Epiphany as we try to hear and try to see Jesus with fresh and new eyes. And the summary of Jesus' sermon is found in the sermon's introduction. It's the Beatitudes. It's our gospel passage that was just read for us today. Jesus is representing a new way of seeing and living in the world. It's not really new. It's mostly old, but it's being represented for us. It's, It's the way of God's kingdom. He's presenting new attitudes, what it looks like when a person is ruled by the very life of God as opposed to the world. And that's because the kingdom of the world is in conflict with the kingdom of God. We know that in our present day and age, it's, it's very prevalent and very apparent. But it's not just a conflict of God's kingdom versus the world's kingdom. It starts to permeate into our personal relationships. We live in a conflict-stricken society, people constantly arguing with each other. It's kind of overrun everything. But what's really happening is not people necessarily at odds with each other. It's a conflict of kingdoms. They're colliding. Husband versus wife. Parent versus child. Sibling versus sibling. Friend versus friend. Liberal versus conservative. Republican versus Democrat. Employee versus boss. Neighbor versus neighbor. It's everywhere, isn't it? Whose will shall prevail? It's the same question from the retreat. And it makes you wonder if there's a kingdom that's ruled by peace. Is there a kingdom where peace is prized and peace is made? And that's that's what Jesus is presenting to us. It's the kingdom of God. And if we give way to it, it begins to inform really every part of our lives, but especially how we see the people in our lives and the conflict that exists. And so this morning, two things. First, his kingdom how the rule of God is truly and strangely beautiful and distinct. And secondly, our conflict, how his kingdom might inform our conflict. So first, his kingdom. Excuse me. Let me start with a clarification of terms, okay, for our purposes this morning. When I say kingdom, I'm communicating that every one of us has an ethos and a telos to our lives. Okay, we have a characteristic spirit and set of values by which we live, And we also have ends for which we are living. That we all have a rule of life. And because we have a rule of life, we have a ruling power as well. Thus, we all have a king and we all have a kingdom. The question is, what's yours? And so when Jesus begins to preach, (coughs) excuse me, he immediately presents the idea and the reality of the kingdom of God into the conversation, and it's conflicting with the kingdom of the world. 
So what is the ethos and telos of the kingdom of this world? I think we can best see it by way of contrast with the Beatitudes if you want to look at them. Instead of humility and meekness, the world pursues power. Instead of mourning and hungering and thirsting, the world pursues comfort. Instead of mercy and holiness, there's a pursuit of success. Instead of peacemaking and enduring persecution, there's a pursuit of recognition, a drive towards popularity, towards acceptance, towards being liked and having followers. Power, comfort, success, recognition. This is really a good summary of the ruling values and goals of the world. And therefore, anyone living this way of life employs whatever means are necessary to achieve these ends. Maybe as an example, a question. Should I be a devoted Christian or not? Well, it depends. Will being a devoted Christian lead to a better position in life? Will being a devoted Christian give you a better chance of success or or social advancement? If not, only be as religious as achieves those ends. You can see how hidden and poisonous this can become. All values become subjective and relative to power, comfort, success, and recognition. And in the eyes of most, this actually seems reasonable. It seems like common sense. I mean, who doesn't want to be powerful instead of weak, rich instead of poor, comforted instead of mourning or sad, full instead of hungry, successful instead of ethical, liked instead of persecuted? It really does sound like common sense. And yet, I believe we know there's something unsettling about this, isn't it? We sense it, like an uncertainty in our heart, like a a groaning inside. That that power, comfort, success, and recognition, they, they do bring a sense of blessing immediately, but not lastingly. And partially, but never fully. That's what happens when we treat these as ultimate ends. They eventually fail us. It reminds me of a a dog I once owned named Boomer. He was an oversized Bichon. Anybody familiar with a Bichon? It basically looks like a a hairball that a big dog coughed up. If you own a Bichon, that was incredibly offensive, and I'm sorry. Okay, But Boomer was a 30-pound Bichon, which means he probably wasn't pure blood. He was something completely different. Boomer decided one day to get into the groceries on the floor in the kitchen. He ate everything, including a five-pound chuck roast, (laughs) raw, immediate, comfort, now. He was living to try and find comfort, right? And it worked immediately and partially, but the next day his stomach growled and he felt awful. He was empty, believing that that would make him full. And what I'm saying is I fear we're too often like my dog. We settle for a lesser kingdom. I, uh, I recently began to revisit an older work by Thomas Akempis. It's called The Imitation of Christ. It's a fairly ancient devotion book from the 15th century. And the opening chapter is entitled Despising All Vanities on Earth. And this is what Akempis says. This is the greatest wisdom, to seek the kingdom of God through contempt of the kingdom of the world. 
It is vanity, therefore, to seek and trust in riches that perish. It is vanity also to court honor and to be puffed up with pride. It is vanity to follow the lusts of the body and to desire things for which severe punishment must later come. It is vanity to wish for long life and to care little about a well-spent life. It is vanity to be concerned with the present only and not to make provision for things to come. It is vanity to love what passes quickly and not to look ahead where eternal joy abides. So turn your heart from the love of things visible and bring yourself into heavenly company. Vanity. There should be something unsettling about the ethos of the world. The uncertainty that exists in the heart over it, it's worth listening to because it's a sign of a failing kingdom and the desire for maybe a longer lasting one. And God gives it to us. It's a different way of seeing and living. It's, it's really a counterculture to our present day. Now, I didn't say contraculture, which some seem obsessed with in our present day, which really is just the world's ethos with a religious veneer. It's combative. It's unhelpful. Not that. A counterculture. Something strangely and beautifully distinct in its ethos and telos and its values and in its goals. The Beatitudes. Look at them for a moment. Not prominence or pride, but humility and poorness of spirit. Not comfort, but acquaintance with sadness and loss in this world. Not power, but restraining power in order to love. Not being filled up by the world and its pleasures, but hungering and thirsting for something greater. Not demanding rights or vengeance, but ruled by mercy and forgiveness. Living a life of integrity, of wholeness, not being a different person depending on who you're with. Not fleeing nor fighting to please others or to control others, but seeking to make peace amidst conflict and even persecution. This is a counterculture. It's a completely different way. And with each of these ruling values, there's a guarantee of blessing given to us by Jesus. Do you see it? It's not just immediate fulfillment like my dog. It's future, it's permanent, it's lasting. If you look of the, of the eight Beatitudes, <coughs> six of them speak of their promise of blessing in the future tense, of what shall be or what will be, that there's a guaranteed future reality in the kingdom of God. And that communicates to us that, that God brings blessedness to life now in part, but later fully, and he guarantees it. A guaranteed fullness of blessing in the future. That tells us something very important. God's rule in the life of a person secures the future with these beautiful promises. And it begins to leak its way into our present day. Future realities start to invade our present lives. And that's why the strange things aren't quite so strange. Like why a Christian can be comforted even while mourning. Or why a Christian might rejoice even while being persecuted. It's evidence of the kingdom of God, the rule of God breaking in. And it's exactly why a person can enter into conflict and make peace. I'm curious, what's your normal way of handling conflict? Do you, do you flight? You, you can't start fighting. Your pursuit of comfort 
leads to avoidance. I wonder maybe you're uh, the opposite. Maybe you're fight. You can't seem to stop fighting. You can't seem to stop arguing. Your pursuit of power and control is what's making it so. Or maybe it's changed. Maybe it used to be flight, but then it became fight. You, you gave in to the other until you finally just had enough. Right? But then this slow-growing bitterness in you found a voice and finally cried out. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you used to be a fighter, and now you're into flight. Okay, you got worn down fighting until you finally just gave up. But what came with that was a quiet resentment in your heart and mind towards the one that you're in conflict with. You just don't say anything. Uh, Shel Silverstein, who was one of my favorite poets as a child. Where the sidewalk ends, anybody? See some head nods. He wrote a poem titled, Don't Change on My Account. It describes this last fight, then flight well. He says, if you're sloppy, that's just fine. If you're moody, I won't mind. If you're fat, that's fine with me. If you're skinny, just let it be. If you're bossy, that's all right. If you're nasty, I won't fight. If you're rough, well, that's just you. If you're mean, that's all right, too. Whatever you are is all okay. I don't like you anyway. <laughs> Pretty good, isn't it? Can you hear the resentment? Sometimes resentment comes with a smile. None of these will work, will they? There are all ways the world handles conflict in an attempt to preserve control and comfort. And they might work immediately or temporarily, but they will never bring lasting peace. And so there need be another kingdom in another way. And there is. Jesus tells us later in our gospel reading, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do you hear that? What a strange thing. Love your enemies. This takes it to a heightened level, doesn't it? It's actually the, the playing out of the seventh beatitude. It's a call to peacemaking. Okay? But it's an extreme version, a, a call to love an enemy. Listen, this is, this is not just someone you're in con conflict with. This is someone who has dismissed you or someone you love, dominated you or someone you love, offended you or someone you love, caused pain to you or someone you love. And so the command to love them, this, this is certainly antithetical to the ethos of the world. And really, it's distinctively Christian. Most theistic religions have agreement on certain ethics, ethics and certain commands. Lying, adultery, murder, stealing. But to love your enemy? This is, this is uniquely Christian. And it's certainly countercultural. And yet, it's not really new. It's been God's idea all along. 
The, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, it's explicitly stated from the beginning. We heard it in our Old Testament reading. But even still, the idea of loving your enemy, it, it existed in the Old Testament in kind of seed form. And it becomes clearer and louder over time as God's kingdom on earth expands. Okay? The Old Testament prophets begin to speak this way, that the kingdom of God will cover the earth as the water covers the seas, that, that God's life and God's ways are not intended solely and exclusively for Israel, but would extend to the nations. The nations. The enemies of the people of God. The ones who had captured and oppressed and exiled and persecuted and killed the people of God. And yet there's an increasing and expanding call to include them. We know this from Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. After he had resurrected, before he had ascended, some of his final words, he said to go and make disciples of all nations. Implicit in that is the command that you're going to have to learn to love your enemies. So who's your enemy? Who's the person or the group of people in your life that have dismissed or despised or used or offended you or someone that you love? Is there someone against whom you harbor enmity that your spirit is in conflict with them? And can you imagine doing what Jesus prescribes here? To love them, to pray for them, to welcome them. Now, listen, loving your enemy does not mean consenting or agreeing to their wrong thinking or their wrong living. Contrary to our current culture's claims, you can love someone and disagree with them. As a matter of fact, I would say if you do love someone, you will disagree with them. Especially if they have errant thinking or they have errant doing. And if they have harmed you, it's likely they've had both. Loving your enemy has to do with more than peacekeeping. It's about peace making. And so the idea of loving this person is really difficult, isn't it? <laughs> but it's possible through the ethos of God's kingdom. By being poor in spirit. By mourning over the brokenness that exists in the relationship and letting sadness enter in where only madness has existed. To grieve the broken relationship. To be meek, restraining your natural instinct to demand rights and to seek vengeance, and instead to let power be controlled by love. By hungering for things that are different from just being made right. By maintaining a spirit of mercy, that, that the default is not vengeance, but it's mercy, and you let justice ride on the back of mercy. You're not forgetting justice, but the spirit that you carry is one of mercy. By being pure in heart, checking your motives regularly, resisting bitterness, resisting resentment. Finally, by making peace, not fleeing, not fighting. As far as you are able, considering ways to make peace with the very person who's wronged you, which I would tell you starts with the pursuit of forgiveness. You believe you're releasing them, but you're really releasing yourself. 
This is beautifully strange, isn't it? It's also incredibly difficult. And I don't want to sound insensitive about how difficult this is, especially amidst some of the longstanding conflict that I'm certain some of you are going through. The call to love your enemy. But I also don't want to dismiss something else. This is exactly what God has done for you. Look at the epistolary reading. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, almost like a climax. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. That's exactly what we were. We naturally and we instinctively opposed or dismissed the rule and the reign of God in our lives. And you know how we did that. We did that by dismissing him or using him or offending him. The very things we just mentioned that caused the conflict and enmity in our own relationships and our own lives. How much more so with him? And so we desperately need God to do what Jesus is prescribing for us, don't we? To love his enemies. And he did at the greatest of costs. He loved his enemies. And so Paul is proclaiming to us here that the peacemaking death of Christ, it was, it was not accidental. It was not incidental. It was intentionally for those who were while they were yet sinning. It was intentionally for those who were opposing God's way in their lives while weak, while sinners, while enemies, then Christ died for us. And those who know and believe this become astounded by it. And you know what happens in their lives? They begin to embody the ethos of the kingdom. They become those who make peace. They're even enabled to do so to an extent that they could even love their enemies. It's a beautiful thing to have peace with God and others. Curious, is this something you know? Peace with God and with others. If not, I pray that you would today. And I pray that you would resolve to seek peace with God and to adamantly pursue to make peace with the person or persons when I said, who is your enemy that crossed your mind? Let his kingdom come and let his will be done in you as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do let your kingdom come and do let your will be done in us as it is in heaven. Thank you that you made peace with us through your son, Jesus Christ. We don't take his blood lightly or for granted. And may we be peacemakers in return, learning and struggling to offer the same forgiveness and mercy and love that has been offered to us. 
We need your grace to do so. And we pray for it in the strong name of Christ. Amen.